0: Hey, it's Elia. We here at Talkhouse recognize that in 2020, even more than usual, life has sometimes felt like a bit too damn much. So we partnered with the very rad nonprofit Sound Mind to bring our listeners a free mental health toolkit. Over at Talkhouse.com/soundmind, you'll find valuable resources that cover everything from coping with coronavirus anxiety and grief to depression and bipolar support to suicide prevention help. There's links to support groups and to sliding scale therapy. You can check out community-specific resources for BIPOC, Latinx, and LGBT-identifying folks, as well as frontline workers, parents, and musicians. These are tough, tough times, and we're all feeling it. We want to make sure our listeners and readers are able to get the help they may need, starting at TalkHouse.com SoundMind. Hi, this is carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Flaisher Tyler. Tron Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Prince Paul. Javier Munoz. F-Miles. Frankie Cosmos. Flying lotus Hi, we're
1: Hyam. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up?
0: What is up? It's your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. We have a sick show for you today country singer charlie crockett in conversation with diplo joining me from ann arbor michigan a woman whose work behind the scenes has helped inform the podcast all summer long but finally on the mic samantha small welcome to the show Woo! thanks for having me sam you and i were on the zoom when we first introduced diplo and charlie crockett and what energy they had huh
1: it was so charming. They just seemed so excited to talk to each other, kind of like fangirling for each other.
0: Totally, and 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 I'm so excited to report that, as with Courtney Barnett and the Breeders, as with Toonyards and Laurie Anderson, we here at the Talkhouse have introduced two awesome artists who are now collaborating.
1: Yep. Charlie Crockett posted on his Insta story, snapped a little pic with Diplo. So something's cooking.
0: I'm ready for it.
1: Yeah, smells good.
0: I'm here for it. <laughs> now, listeners, in case you're unfamiliar with Charlie Crockett, I have to tell you, the man is a direct descendant of Davy Crockett. Yep, that Davy Crockett. And Charlie is releasing some of the best country music out to date. When I listen to his songs, I am instantly transported to that classic 50s country sound. But instead of the lily white cowboy, Charlie brings a different look. He's got Creole blood, he's got Jewish blood, and he totally smashes the mold of what classic country can look like.
1: His new album is called Welcome to Hard Times, and he himself has had a bit of a struggle.
0: He has seen the hard times, Sam.
1: He has seen them, but he's still prospering. He was raised by a single mother in a trailer in the Rio Grande Valley. He's a twice convicted felon. Um, He's lost his sister to addiction, was homeless, but he doesn't let that stop him and was surviving as a busker across basically everywhere, New York, New Orleans.
0: And he told us a wonderful story as we were waiting for Diplo to join about busking across Morocco.
1: Yes, Charlie Crockett has a lot of stories, and that's part of his charm, you know. He's putting all of this experience into his music.
0: Yeah, uh, now, Welcome to the Hard Times is Charlie's seventh record, and by far the biggest. He really is getting some juice on this. One thing he did differently is he brought in the Black Keys' Dan Auerbach to do some co-writes. And while you don't hear the Black Keys' sound, you feel that level of craftsmanship.
1: Yeah, definitely. I can say he got a little bit groovier on this album. You can see he has Mm. a little bit of funk going on. And not to say that that's missing on the rest of the records, but there's something definitely more intentional about the sound with this record.
0: From Welcome to Hard Times, let's check out the track Run Horse Run.
2: I watch the dealer pass the cards around. See trouble coming because I know that sound. Lovers, they will quit you, but people rob you blind. Good friends are awful. Hard
0: I love blind. it, Sam. I love it.
1: It's quite good, I would say. So yeah, as you can hear from Run Horse Run, there's this sweet 50 sound coming from Charlie Crockett, and that's really what drew Diplo to him. Coming from Tupelo, Mississippi, Thomas Wesley Pence, a.k.a. Diplo, or as his friends call him Wes, has this rare ability to call anyone in the world to collab— he switches styles with every single album he makes. And no matter what he makes, they're usually a massive success. From the early odds, he was co-producing M.I.A.'s groundbreaking early LPs, you know, Paper Planes.
0: Yeah, that earned him one of his multiple Grammys.
1: He also had one with Beyonce for his work with Lemonade. He had one for his supergroup with Skrillex. And I think that's where he collabed with Justin Bieber, the, you know, infamous Where Are You Now?
0: Yeah, he's really worked with everyone. Snoop Dogg, Deontward, Bad Bunny, and has been in multiple supergroups. We've got one with Mark Ronson. We've got one with Labyrinth and Sia. And as you mentioned,
1: one with Skrillex. He also founded the dope label Mad Decent, which also has touring festivals, probably at a city near you. Uh, one day.
0: <laughs> yeah, one day again soon. Those block parties were awesome. <laughs> His latest record, Diplo Presents Thomas Wesley Chapter One Snake Oil, was a turn towards country pop,
1: Yeah, it was a strange but really magnificent concoction with tracks like Dance With Me, that feature.
0: He got Young Thug. Yeah,
1: you got Young Thug with Thomas Rhett. I don't even know how that happened, but it's amazing (laughs) and weird. We also got the Jonas Brothers there. The list could go on. Just look at the features. It's wild.
0: And of course, Sam, that record closes out with Diplo's very, very famous remix of Lil Nas X with Billy Ray Cyrus's Old Town Road.
1: And you can check out Heartless from that very album right now.
2: Taking my...
1: That's sweet country music right there.
0: <laughs> Sam, that track really shows Diplo working at the forefront of the nexus of hip hop and country.
1: At- Sometimes their talk may be a bit esoteric or as Diplo puts it, nerdy. But you can tell <laughs> that these two have like a real genuine respect for each other's work. The two really talk about how both of these genres have influenced how they really see music, you know, growing up, uh, listening to rap, and then kind of the transition to country, which they both seem to follow.
0: Yeah, and it was cool to hear them talk about the changing look and sound of country. And within that, the difference between the sort of Indie country, as Charlie calls it, the blue collar country, and the major label sounds, which he calls the ivory tower. I love that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my friends and I actually call it the yeehonessence, you know, the introduction (laughs) to country and to pop music again. It's the yeehonessence. Get with it.
0: I love it. We would be remiss not to mention that the guys also chop it up on fashion.
1: They're kind of fly, so they're kind of obligated to tell us where they get their clothes.
0: These are some very sharp-dressed dudes. (laughs) And interestingly, we hear a take on why it's important to dress like that.
1: You got to show you mean business.
0: Let's hear this conversation. We've got Charlie joining from King Electric Recording in Austin and Diplo at home in LA, self-recording on that
2: computer in his pocket.
1: little voice memo action. (laughs)
2: Let's do it. Hello, I'm Charlie Crockett. That's Charlie with an E-Y, Crockett with two T's. And you're listening to Talk House Podcast, baby. Hey, this is Diplo. You're
3: listening to Talk House Podcast. My name is not as cool as Charlie Crockett's,
2: but um, that's all you get. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, Diplo?
3: Hey, man. How are you doing? I'm
2: good, brother. Just staying out the heat.
3: When I hear your recordings, you have such a great vintage sound. Like I don't know if that's on purpose or if you are just recording in your barn or like you have a certain Charlie Crockett like filter on your microphone but it sounds so pure and like kind of lo-fi and it reminds me of like adapt tones kind of sound or like something like vintage
2: yeah well because I I recorded most all my albums really in only two places and both studios one is outside of Austin Texas with this guy Billy Horton and then the one that I just did is with this dude Mark Neal out of Valdosta Georgia and you might know him for the breakout Black Keys record, yeah. brothers, they did like ten years back.
3: So yeah, I was gonna say Black Keys sound is similar. I was working with um the Black Keys producer on, on that on actually that record with Leon Bridges. I think that you might have heard that's um, that didn't release yet, but I had him kind of do a vintage sound. That's the one thing I'm not I'm not good at. Like I'm a good producer. I came from like the hip hop world and I mm-hmm. came from like um, exploring all different routes. But the one thing I don't have is like a really awesome studio with instruments. You know, I have like a couple keyboards, my piano, but I don't. You need that live, tough sounding, you know, one, one room mic and someone that, a producer that records bands is acclimated to just making the band sound so good from a certain era. And that's what I hear on your records, which is awesome.
2: No, oh, I appreciate that, man. Those studios, I think the most shocking thing about those type of studios, I mean, I grew up in the hip hop era myself. You know, hip hop is how I got into music, freestyling and stuff in school. Organized sports, and then getting into street playing. I was always in like a crossover of like hip hop, jazz bands, folk stuff. Just kind of all the mix of things you get on the streets in like New Orleans or New York City. And so I come out of that modern world where it's everything's mashed up. Myself, and and then but and then I got more and more into the old school sound. But one of the most surprising things about walking into a, like these places that I've been recording is like the lack of gear. Yeah. In there, you know, it's like. It's more of these old rooms. And these guys are building these type of studios after this model down in Crowley, Louisiana, where the old label that was actually based out of Nashville was called Excello Records. And that's where like Slim Harpo, Lazy Lester, and all these guys came out of of South Louisiana. And that that sound with all that, that reverb and those kind of small rooms is just, I've just stuck to that the whole time.
3: Are you still tracking like bands? Or are you guys doing it like separate tracks? This is a pretty nerdy conversation, but like, are you still are you tracking it like? Um, do your band play together, or do you guys play in separate rooms, or do you, do you overdub like every instrument that you have, like the steel guitar and then the rhythm guitar? How do you do it?
2: So the foundation would be built around the rhythm guitar, drums, upright bass. That's all tracked live in the main room, mm-hmm. and then o- overdubbed the steel and the vocal. Yeah, actually, all my the, the last record was done that way. The one with Mark Neal, all the ones before that, everybody's been in the same room. That's awesome. Yeah, that's how I've done it the whole time. You know, it's cheap.
3: <laughs> yeah, but no, the sound works. You're a steel guitar player. Um, you're not you're not playing steel guitar, are you? You have you have your own
2: player? I wish. Nah, no, nah, no. Nah. It's this guy named Nathan Fleming. He he lives down here in Austin. He's probably the best steel player in the world under under uh, 50 years old.
3: Cause like if I hear your records. I feel like the steel guitar is at the same level as your vocals. Like it's always like it's you and steel guitar like going hand to hand, almost like battling. It was like the steel guitar player could be like the main artist too, because you just present steel guitar so much in the records. And mm. I wasn't that familiar with new records of steel guitar until I heard you. Like you were really putting on there and like doing it in different ways. And I think it's awesome.
2: I appreciate that. Diplo, you know what you just described? That's the way they did it in Nashville and like the Bakersfield sound back in the fifties and sixties, just exactly what you described was that the vocal and the steel was right there right. playing with each other, interwoven, like all that old George Jones stuff. Man, that's how they did it. Yeah. And I I put that way up front, you know, and it's like country music is a dirty word in radio these days. It's hard for even if you're a country artist, you know, they'd be pulling you off to the side, be like, don't call this country, or like we're going to push your most soul-sounding material to AAA radio. But like I've been trying to thread that needle between – what i do which is like a mix of traditional country soul and rhythm and blues yeah and i'm trying to thread that needle and it's very hard it's hard to walk that line you know to bring up like johnny cash where you can like bring tradition with you and also the modern stuff and deal with this weird world where it's like country music's taboo and then outside of country music i hear every day man where it's like people are like man I love your music, but like I'm somebody that considers myself someone that listens to everything but country, you know, so it's like, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like how you view it, because I've read some stuff about, you know, I know you you interested in country music and coming from Mississippi, like, we share that in common, I know I was reading that about you, like, I grew up listening to like Chopped and Screwed, Dirty South Hip Hop, and a lot of country music, and that stuff was all over the place, sitting on top of each other.
3: Your music, I feel like, is, is definitely country, but it's very much an era of country, you know, like, you know, 50s country. And I, I also hear, like, this fusion that I feel is familiar to me. Like, when I hear, like, I am not afraid, it feels like it could be from a different era, but I'm like, actually, this is like a reggae song. Yeah. You know, you got the bubble organ. So I, know, I don't know if that was on purpose or if that was something you just happened to tap into. Are you trying to push the boundaries a little bit? Like, I don't, I, it's presented as country records, but I know underneath it, you, you got, like, some secret you got some secret stuff you're, you're doing in the records. Like as here as an artist, I hear, I hear you trying to push the envelope a little bit. It's simp- I feel like it's simple to say it's soul, music, and country together, because I think you and Leon do it in, at some points. Sturgill Simpson or like Chris Stapleton, they use soul as like, you know, kind of like the timing of the voice and stuff. And that seems really authentic to me. It just seems like, mm. it doesn't seem like a, a real crazy combination. It just feels like the, the natural way for country and soul to mix together. But I do feel like you're sneaking some things in your records every once in a while where you're like, trying to trying to cross a little couple borders sometimes. Is that true?
2: Oh yeah man I mean where me and Leon are similar is like Leon played on the street too I played on the street for 10 years and so when I'm blending all these sounds together that's literally me bringing everything from the street like I got into old time country music playing on the streets in New Orleans because these kids and all these jug bands I mean I played on Royal Street man like 10 hours a day I used to play in subway cars in New York City so it'd be like one part of the day, I'd be, like, right next to some jug band with all these crazy street kids hopping trains and stuff. yeah. And they would be playing nothing but, like, real old-time Hank Williams and, like, folk songs from the Carter family and stuff. And then maybe in that same day, I'd be playing with a straight brass band, you know, or, like, be up in New Orleans. I'd hitchhike up there. You know, and two weeks later, I'd be in the train cars and be doing, like, my little thing that you hear me doing with, like, a kid rapping freestyling over everything you know so it'd be like in a train car in new york city not everybody liked like what i sang or my thing was but like if they didn't like what i was doing they loved the fact that like this dude J-Don was rapping about you know the next stop rapping about the you know sports yeah. team that the dudes got on a snapback like relating all this type of stuff so i kind of merged all these styles together kind of like out of I guess out of like necessity to, to survive and to make it. And I think that country music back in the 50s and 60s was incorporating a lot of that stuff. Like if you look at a Willie Nelson record, man, like from the short-haired Willie they called him from the, from the 60s, everybody talks about Willie Nelson from the outlaw period. But that period is really when he's going more commercial, which is where he made his money. But nobody would care what Willie was doing in the 70s if it wasn't for those 15... 20 years he put in before that where he was writing all them hits and those songs, those producers are mixing in lots of reggae and like polyrhythms, yeah. the cha-cha, they're doing all that stuff behind the music. Like, all those guys in the 60s, that they're calling it country, but that was like, they were mixing up a lot of stuff in yeah. a way that like, people nowadays in the independent country world, they talk about it, but I don't know that a lot of those folks realize just how eclectic the sounds coming out of Nashville and Texas and Southern California back in those yeah. days really was. Or even know? if you
3: think about the journey that steel guitar has made, do you ever really think it's like a traditional country instrument, but like the, the journey it made from like Hawaii to California, yeah. it's such a, it, <laughs> that's the one of the weirdest things ever, that that's like a, you know, a hallmark of country music is a steel guitar. It's driven itself to be that, and you can't really separate it, but if you go to the history, you're like, wow, this instrument was pretty weird came from some weird places and country music is that fusion. When you talk about Bakersfield, I feel like country and folk and like, you know, all the way from like, going from the outlaw country to like even Fleetwood Mac, how diverse it is. On the surface, it might seem like just kind of like this one sound but there's so many levels to that kind of california country that seeps from like woodstock all the way to like coachella and like all the way to like stagecoach and when i get people into country music i kind of like go that way i go into that california Mm. country because it's really accessible for them and then then they deep dive into a a hole where you can go so far and that's how i kind of how i found you Mm. you just came up on like a on an algorithm for me like like about a year or two ago and i was like where this guy come from and um i fell in love with the records and uh I looked a little bit about your history and I'm like, okay, I saw you were from, you know, Texas and I, I read about you performing in New Orleans and I hear you talking about that fusion. Because when I when I used to go to New Orleans, I was like the big city for me too. Like I was born in Tupelo, Memphis was closer, but New Orleans was like the Babylon, right? And then mm. I started to like hang out with like the young kids and all the kids doing DIY stuff. And I realized how punk that city really is. Like all the kids mm. doing music, like some of the jug bands and how that, yes, that, that city has always been this perfect American place where everything comes together, and, I, and it's a big mess, but it's been refined for like 100 years of just excellence in music and culture. I'm glad to see that that's where you came from because that gives you that extra couple stripes on your shoulder because that's a that's a tough place to make it and also a place where you're getting influences from so much.
2: Yeah, man, that's a perceptive viewpoint of New Orleans. Uh, I like that DIY That punk thing you're describing, that is what it is. I think that's exactly what it is. And I played in the street, man. Like people don't know this about New Orleans. A lot of folks looking at it from the outside in. But well, number one, I couldn't play in the clubs. I just didn't have my shit together in a way that I could front these bands and, you know, in these in these clubs on Bourbon Street or or Decatur or Frenchman or whatever. But the money to be made playing music in New Orleans, if you don't have an agent and you're like on that national touring circuit, man, there's no money to be made in them bars. All the money to be made is out on the street. We would make a lot of money doing it that way, and because we didn't play in the clubs, and you stood out in the street all day, is you know, besides that river of whiskey flowing through there, is it's it's culture that's really flowing through there. It's just so much culture, yeah. you know. Because and that's they ask me this type of stuff all the time. It's like, well, did you grow up listening to country music? And I'm like, well, I mean, I listened to commercial pop country radio right alongside commercial hip-hop, because that's just what it was, right? In the 80s and 90s. Yeah. I didn't get into country music in the way that I do it now until I heard it on the street in New Orleans. And one of the reasons that I heard it on the street in New Orleans is cause there were so many they're playing so many drinking songs. And those drinking songs really got those tourists to put their money down. Yeah. And in the process, I fell in love with the songwriting and the storytelling. Can't beat it, man.
3: It seems like your voice was destined to be a country voice. Like I'm listening mm-hmm. to you talk now, you just have that low ass fucking country swagger that it feels like your journey was always going to be there. But I think no one grows up like being presented with old time country music. You have to find it. Mm-hmm. Me, I was the same way as you. After school, I put on BET, Rap City, and it was right next to CMT Country Countdown. They were like Channel 51 and 52, and I was just bound between the two of them during commercial breaks. Yeah. And I was equally hip hop, equally country pop. I didn't really understand Johnny Cash, until I got, went to college. And I was like, well, oh, you know, learning a little bit, but I was into country pop music as a young person. And um, I see that natural journey, like how you can take it and end up, end up at country music after after 20 years, you know, because you just kind of get there on the songwriting level. And when you talk about the DIY thing, I understand how you make more money on the street, because just like me, like, if you're gonna play a club in New Orleans, you know, the promoter's gonna take all the money and, and cut a little bit up for the artists and the people playing, but, like, I used to rent VFWs and stuff to put on my DJ sets. Cause I, if I was playing a nightclub, I would be getting like basically like an hourly wage. But if I ran the club myself, you're getting everything. You feel small, you get everything. So that's kind of like the same, like you had the same journey that way when we were learning how to, how, to, how to make money and survive doing this.
2: You was renting out VFWs? That's a good idea.
3: Yeah, we have, we have that's all we do. Like, in, I moved to Philly and that's, we would rent them out cause no one was using them and they were halls. They were big. Just, we'd go fly, we'd get drunk, go to like the streets and just fly our people mm. and then eventually build a buzz that had a party like monthly and then take that party and move it to different cities and then make a little tiny empire and not pay any taxes <laughs> on, the, on the fees because it's all cash. Yeah. Um, so same as like a street performer in, a, in, a, in the same way. So talking about talking about Texas music, you know, I don't know if you know Vinyl Ranch. Oh yeah, David Wrangler, that's my boy. He's like a perfect example of like Screwed and Chopped meets Country History. And he's just like a, a perfect Texas guy and I, I think that you have that same kind of dichotomy. Like, Tell me how you took a journey from hip hop in Texas and and make it where you are now.
2: He's thrown a lot of shows with me together, David Wrangler, and what he's doing with Vinyl Ranch, I think, is a really accurate representation of, of Southern culture. You know, like that whole Dolly Parton meme he does with the Jolene, but it's like a cup, of, she's drinking a yeah. cup of lean. <laughs> yeah. It speaks, I think, to our generation of young people in the South. I think it, it says something about like the mixing of cultures in the South. I think it says a lot about how whiteness in the South has changed its viewpoint with the younger generations and the more mixed generation which I think we all identify with, it's like the first music hustle that I ever saw was DSR, like Dirty South Riders, and Swisher House pushing all those mixtape CDs out of the trunks of cars and parking lots outside of schools and stuff. And it was all pop music off the radio that they were slowing down and freestyling over. And and we we would take those CDs and rap over them ourselves, like in basketball or at, at some dude's house after school or whatever. And freestyling was my first sense of music. My mama got me a guitar when I was 17 and I started playing then. But before that, in middle school, I started rapping and we was rapping over all those freestyle beats. So I got my sense of meter, melody, timing, performance, everything from from hip hop, really. And that was the only music that, that I could find that to identify, you know, struggle and a message, which usually is a black message, more often than not, of overcoming struggle and oppression. And that's something that, always spoke to me and it was through sampling of old school music and hip-hop like i remember it was wu-tang clan how i got into uh wendy renee them sampling uh, after laughter which eventually i recorded yeah. on, a, on a record and in the night and that kept happening it was like finding nina simone through kanye yeah i think after you know? laughter is like a gateway
3: drug for any young person yeah <laughs> into old music. You just like, you listen, you, it's Wu Tang really. Wu Tang. Wu Tang and DJ Premier. And like, those are just like the gateway drugs mm-hmm. for me as like a hip hop kid. I just got like obsessed with old music. I'm like, if these guys knew about this music and they're putting it and they're twisting it up to make something brand new, that's like anybody could do that. Anybody could buy a sample. I don't have to start a band. All I gotta do is learn about music. That could be your skill set. And I think that's kind of like what I did as a, as a producer. But After Laughter is like the gateway drug to like all the darkness that you get with soul music and Motown, yeah. and then you get the country. And-
2: yeah, that cracked me wide open, man. I got into Wendy Renee, and I started looking at her whole catalog, and I just thought she was the singing, I thought she was the singing ass woman I'd ever heard at that time. Yeah. And then I got into Stax, you know, and it's just, well, you just keep going, man.
3: Yeah, Rizzo yeah. was like the Stacks. He was putting up all these crazy, he was just like the Stax guy. He had all the mm, weirdest Stacks samples because i remember he I had an interview later i was like his dad just had a cd of like stacks like a, a cd compilation of just like all these stacks
2: oh like the whole discography box set
3: yeah like all in it. that's what he would just do i thought he was like a vinyl digger but he just like had this one stacks compilation cd that had like 500 songs man if you gonna have one
2: compilation the stacks one
3: that's a pretty good one to have man the stacks one. then you then you got the james brown discography and then you got mm-hmm. the motown and it was like i got into this producer named charles stepney mm-hmm. Uh, he was producer for all these records on chess and cadet oh yeah and i really love this group this group called rotary connection and he had this thing where he did psychedelic music and soul like the beginning of minnie ripperton and that was like he was like my my big influence as like a 60s 70s he had like ramsey lewis covering beatles and like this weird mix of soul and psychedelia that kind of like was my thing i learned but i learned through hip-hop to find those guys and i was like i want to be a producer now yeah so I'm glad we are the same journey.
2: Oh, yeah, man. It's hip-hop all the way, you know? And and, and I think this stuff about country music and, and rap and hip-hop today, I mean, they're the same struggles, you know? It's like within country music, yeah. there's a lot of country music that's not honest and authentic. And then when it is, you know, and it's the same thing in hip-hop. There's a whole lot of it that is just watered down. And then when you get that real voice coming through, it's obvious, you yeah. know? And it, it doesn't really matter that much what people label that i think it just comes down to the integrity of, of what you recording yeah that's essentially soul music too yeah man
0: this show is brought to you by patreon who ask creators are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes social media and streaming platforms help people find your work but getting you paid is another story With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per-stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care the most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, you'll skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. So if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on Patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve.
3: I'm gonna switch topic real quick. So yep. I really want to bring this up. You might be the best dressed guy uh, I've seen on um, Instagram <laughs> as of late. And uh, I'm wondering, you must spend a lot of time shopping. Are you like, <laughs> I mean, I see the the, the amazing hats, uh, the, all the fits, it's very to a T like, I mean, I'm into like Japanese fashion. I'm not sure if you're into that too, but like that Western way, I'm not sure if you're digging that deep Are you going on like benches just in Austin little clothing shops or, Can you give me a little insight into your style, into your fashion?
2: Oh, man. Well, yeah, I just tour on a bus nonstop. I mean, outside of, you know, this pandemic, playing five nights a week. And so, you know, you're just always in a different town. We got a lot of time on our hands, brother. You know what I mean? And so I just hit up a lot of places. People think I pay all this money for these suits and stuff. But I mean, in these little towns, like in, say, in Missouri, for example, like Columbia, Missouri, there's three or four spots in that town that I just like to hit up on rotation with whenever I'm there. And I just look all the time. And if you're looking all the time, cause you ain't got nothing to do, you know, that's when you come across those, you know, 40, $50 polyester, 70s Western suits, you know? And like, yeah, um, I buy them all the time. I buy them all the time. And, you know, coming from a street background, the way that I learned how to make money coming from poverty in South Texas, you dress like you want people to realize that you are to be respected. And that like you can collect the check at the at the end of that night. You know what I mean? And so I've always really yeah. put it on to a T. And I like all the custom suits. I see the way that you're doing it too. I really like the custom nudie style suits, the Miller, I love the Miller Western suits out of Denver from the 60s. Yeah. I like buying all that stuff. I love stay-pressed clothing. I just think that classic look. Man, it just looks good. I like the way pants fit. You know, I don't want them hanging. Yeah. I used to hate. They used to hang off my ass. Now I like wearing them with that 12 inch rise. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, yeah, up, up high, up the high, the high waisted. It make you look better, man. I look like I'm in shape even when I'm not.
3: <laughs> I've been wearing like the vintage clothing a lot. My body just happens to fit those men that were wearing clothes in the 60s and 70s. I buy the suits. I don't gotta tailor anything. If I buy something new, I gotta go spend 200 bucks putting the pants on right, getting the creases right, yeah. or getting the shirts you know tight enough on me. But yeah, those vintage suits, those, like, old, you know, you, you just see the guys wearing them at the Opry or whatever. Like, I, I'll buy all those suits, like, and I'll fix them up. And then there's, like, a bunch of new people that are making great stuff, like Union Western and um, yep. my boy in London.
2: Are you talking about Texas Joe?
3: Yeah, that guy is in London that makes the, uh, he does, like, kind of nudie-style suits, and his girlfriend does. Yeah, that's does, Texas uh,
2: Joe. That's my boy. He's over there in Soho.
3: Yeah, he's awesome. He loves you, man. He, he made me a couple of looks. Yeah, that stuff, I'm, I'm lucky that uh, <laughs> no one's buying all of this so I can find it when I'm, when I'm like, out on tour, too. But there's a lot of like new brands, and especially out of Japan, that like that do the the Western the workwear really well. It's mm. very expensive, but they're like tailoring it like they used to do back in the day. Back in mm. like I said, you said Colorado and Texas. So yeah, I really appreciate your style. And I see your videos. You got like this mashup. You got the ponchos mixed with the the new boots, and you got like the everything's like. Really well done. So you're ace at the at the style. So I really, I really like that.
2: Well it takes one to know one, big brother, because uh <laughs> don't even act like I got more suits than you. I, I see you in your videos too. I'm like, where does he get this? I, I got two, I got too many. I don't I'm just kinda pissed cause, you know, the summer
3: was gonna be big and I got nowhere to wear. <laughs> I'm like, just dress up in like sweats free hats now, yes, me I see him with, here. A, <laughs> with a baseball cap. I, went, I was so bored yesterday. I went on Bass Pro Shops. I bought like every hat they had in every color. There was like $3.99. I was just got like, I'm only wearing trucker hats nowadays in my, my house. So I'm just, I got nothing to do. I got nowhere to go. So kind of wish I had somewhere to go show off, man. But in the meantime, I guess just Instagram.
2: Yeah that's, yeah, that's weird. I took advantage of the, man, I just grinding so hard. And you know, up to this point, most of my records, very little money has been put into. Like I make the records really cheap and then tour mm-hmm. really hard on the independent circuit, like really hard in like, you know, B markets mostly. And that's like a, the strategy that I've worked with my agent out of Nashville. We work like basically the the only modern equivalent to what those country boys would have been working like Hank Williams and George Jones and, and Charlie Pride and those guys was working back in the in the day. I work on that the modern version of that circuit. And so when you play in 200 shows a year, and the live show is my marketing. But because, yeah. it, it is, I don't want to call it a blessing, but you know my record's relevancy because of the pandemic. I wrote Welcome to Hard Times last year, but then it's just doing a lot better than I could have ever expected because I think it's relevant to the times. And I was able to really focus and make the videos I wanted to make this time, man. I ain't never had more than a half an afternoon to do anything. Yeah. You know, because you're just working nonstop.
3: I mean, I'm trying all kinds of new things. I don't have, like, uh, videos to make. Mm-hmm. I did a couple ideas, but I'm, like, got really good into the guitar. I never really got the, had a chance to play it. You know, I never—I'm 41. I just started playing guitar properly, like, the last two months.
2: That's cool you know? that you're picking it up, man.
3: Yeah, things like that, just because I would never have— I've always wanted to do it, and i have, like, oh, I got, like, nothing to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, oh, Saturday, <laughs> uh, Sunday. <laughs> you know, I'm like— <laughs> But um, you you got the only billboard, only new billboard in Hollywood. I noticed the other day oh, that's I was driving right. by. Like every, I paid for that myself, big dog. You, you're smart because no, I'm. There's still like billboards for like albums from like t- a year ago out there that are like not even out anymore. There's like billboards for like my Vegas shows that are not happening, and you got the only new billboard. I don't know why no one's doing that. You're the only new billboard in all of California. I noticed it yesterday.
2: That's cool. That was my own idea, man. I just uh, I had the money from I got I got a lot of records out and. I just put my foot down and I said, I want a billboard in the middle of LA. I want one in the middle of Houston. I want one in Austin. If they go well, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy more. Cause they're also, man, they're like half off right now, bro. You know? They're
3: so cheap. <laughs> I have a label called Mad Decent, and we buy we buy like a hundred, not big ones like yours, we buy like hundred a year and rent it for the whole year. And we just put up sometimes we just put up stupid shit, like just text. Whatever
2: you want. Yeah, we
3: literally just have a hundred billboards. We just put up like a picture. I was one was like a picture of my gold tooth I had last year with like a <laughs> uh, Zoom code. Where you go to my Spotify play, it was just jokes on there like just it's kind of like no it's like a cheat code no one realizes people still look at billboards especially in LA when you're driving because it's traffic
2: so you got to look at something everybody notices them man they've come up in the last few days and I'm just in the in the stories I'm getting tagged in them left and right and it's like I've been wanting to buy my own billboards forever you know and then people were telling me not to do it because the economy had slowed down and all this stuff they also you know there's a lot of pressure on me to like hold the record back till next year and I'm not a big yeah. artist, man. And I'm like, look, if I wait and put it out and t- when when things get back to good, all the big artists on the big labels with all the big money, they just gonna drown Charlie Crockett out. So yeah, you got a point. Instead, of, instead of moving it back, I wanna move it forward. And then I just kicked and screamed and complained like crazy to get as big a, a digital marketing advertising budget as I could. And uh, I poured all my time because I'm not touring. I put 10 days into each video. I put a lot of effort into my strategy for like, because there's, look, I can't control the big industry. I can't control these radio people. Yeah, I can't control this pay to play publicity game with the gatekeepers. We can't, even in the world that you're in, you know, it's like a lot of those things are outside our control. It's like, what can we control? Exactly. The way we advertise ourselves, we can control our advertising and where we pe- show people that we can control advertising on YouTube yeah. and Instagram and, and kind of beyond that, you know, it's out there in the world, you know? I'm
3: glad you're thinking about that because I know a lot of other DJs and producers, they're like, they keep complaining about this and that, like not getting things done. I'm like, look, now's a chance for you to do something different. Yep. Like now's a chance for you to work as hard as you did when you're on tour on something else. Like whether it's another marketing plan, whether it's like me, I've been doing all this streaming and DJing. Like I've started DJing in Fortnite. I've tried to do some campaigns with people. I'm just trying mm-hmm. to do anything that I wouldn't have done before because... I got nothing to lose now. And if you're going to be working really hard when things get back to good, you're going to be have a leg up on everybody else. And that's do. important to understand, right? This is a cheesy thing to say, but you know, you always see that that picture of like a cat trying to climb a, a couch or something on a little poster in a, in a school and it says like tough times don't last but tough people do. Mm-hmm. And you, that's it's it doesn't really make sense till now. You realize like this this is going to pass. Yeah. But whatever work you put in right now is going to last forever, you know, because now now's the time to to actually have that ingenuity that's gonna count and it's gonna matter. So good on you for doing
2: that. Hey, yeah, man, hell I, shit, I can't afford to stop, you know, and I ain't, I just always done it the hard way, but uh, I was wondering like with this country album that you've been doing and like, kind of where you're coming from, I've been seeing a lot of see your videos and with the new record and seeing stuff with like Orville Peck and a lot of the like, kind of hoedown style like beats that you've been putting yeah, down. I mean, like, I was just wondering where, where you see all that going. I'll give you the, the
3: short version of why I, I did the album. I'm always doing different things, like different projects and dabbling in them as a producer. And then the last couple of years, I realized like the records I make that are my own. Like this first project I did was called Major Lasers, like a dance hall project. Really? Yeah, I heard all that. And I, I was like, the first thing I do on my own, I control them and I make the most money out of that. I tour them and like me being the rat race in LA, producing different people's records, fighting for like a Miley Cyrus feature or whatever it is, like someone's record that's like kind of boring. In the end, like it's kind of cheap to do that. And um, I was like, I put my own records out I make more money on the road, just like you said, like doing that. And I'm just like, I started to deal with, with, with my friend Ron Perry. He works at Columbia Records. And I was like, what am I going to do here? I don't want to, I want to do, I want to like experiment with a major label. But what do I do? And I had this kind of like flip, messing around with some country artists back in the day. I, was like, I had some records with Sam Hunt and some other guys and Sturgill, who was a friend of mine who was on same management. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Let, I'll do country because then at least I don't understand the marketing of country music. But if a label, if I put that, my, my work on there, if a label's putting it out, I count on them because I'll just make records and try to help them translate that. Because they, Sony and Columbia had a lot of good country records. So I put on them, I started working on records. It was all random. Morgan Wallen was the first guy to really do a record with me. Mm. And um, every, everybody in Nashville, you know how it is. Like, they're like, what do I want to do this for? It was a really pop, like nothing against some of those pop country guys. But I wasn't, I didn't want to do too much like that. I was trying to do something different. Mm. And Morgan was the only one who gave me a record that was like, here, do whatever you want with it. I'll support it. And that record got real big, we did it called Heartless. And it was like a mix of trap music and country, but not in a cheesy way. It sounds like we did it like a real record. That's what I wanted it to feel like. And I started seeing artists like you and uh, Orville Peck, of course, and just being all these guys who were like reaching out to me with the same ideas. They're not from country, essentially, but they're like doing this amazing country sound mm-hmm. and styles. And I was like, getting inspired by them. Even Blanco Brown, Leon Bridges another guy. I just was like, let me just do this and try to make, make some sense out of it for myself, something new. And it did really well, like my country project and Thomas Rhett even. I mean, I don't know how I got Thomas Rhett and Young Dog on a record together, but <laughs> like doing something like that, <laughs> that just, just something like make people, my, my fans are already like kind of like confused cause I was doing dance hall, then house music, and now country, they're kind like, of like, any fans that stick with me this long are really, they got a lot of stamina, <laughs> man, because I'm probably the most confusing person out there, but I really appreciate them. So I just think, and I was surprised that the country, it's probably the biggest records <laughs> I've done on these country ideas since like, major laser lead that's like weird that it's like this is the biggest thing i've done I, I don't hear a lot of it you know country music's just like a silent majority they're just they're hearing it people are listening to mm-hmm. it and they're going to shows and the b markets and you know they're not like the, they're not big internet sensations they're not big on tiktok they're not big on mm-hmm. instagram but they're but their music is traded heavily and people like are are down with that for a long time like a record in country takes like a year to hit the top in pop music or hip-hop, it's like you guys got like two weeks to show and prove and then you're gone. Yeah, that's Someone right.
2: taking your spot right behind you. Yeah, that's right, that's true. Sturgill's breakout record, I think, took like a year to climb up to the top. The gulf between like pop country up in these ivory towers and then like that blue collar independent country that they do in today, it's the Grand Canyon between them. Yeah. You know, and, there, and there's like no man's land in between.
3: It's totally crazy. I, I see, I'm trying to do something with my records. I'm trying to do something where there isn't any, there's, cro- there's a crossover. Like, you know, I sang that record like yesterday. I am just kind of like trying to mess with an idea. Like, now the new country stuff I'm working on has been like R&B and, and rappers. I'm asking them to sing these country ideas. Like the new thing with like St. John, Leon Bridges, and I said Parting next door And like, just kind of like, just trying to do something different where there aren't any rules. Because like I said, if I get Young Thug and Thomas Red in a record, and that only happened because Thomas Rhett's father-in-law liked Young Thug's verse. <laughs> like, he was the one who co-signed, he's like, this guy sounds like a, his was, father-in-law was, like an, it was in an 80s hair metal band or something and he like, liked Young Thug. And that's the reason that, cause that record made sense because you need someone to, country guys, they don't. Takes a metal guy to tie it together. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird because these country guys, they care so much about what's happening in Nashville. They don't, they're scared of taking chances a lot of times. And I think in the 70s, like you said, there was no 60s or 70s. People were doing whatever they could. They were changing, they were, <laughs> flipping ideas and making records about drugs and outlaw country, and there wasn't like, and they were doing what they wanted, and they were making a big impact and having influences everywhere. Like those Willie Nelson records, The Highwaymen, they were, they were, they were heard throughout the industry. People were like listening to those records, they influenced for a long time to come. A lot of new country records, they kinda, they're just pop, they got the little snapping in the drums, and you, then there's the next record, sounds like the next record. So uh, I'm glad that there's like, a, there's like a good underground happening in that, in that kind of country and Western world that you're part of.
2: You know what Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson said about that era? They said that when Bob Dylan came down from New York City to Nashville, he went went down there to get away from the New York City thing. And that was a really radical thing that he did, to go down there and work with Bob Johnston. And those records that he made, like Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harden, that stuff that Dylan did, Johnny Cash said himself that that opened up the door for all those guys to do what they were doing. And it it took somebody from outside of the like Nashville sound in the mid 60s, which there were great records getting made, but there was also a lot of really bad records getting made and they was all starting (laughs) to sound exactly the same. And like a guy like Willie Nelson, who I think was one of the very best country singers of the 60s, his delivery style, his songwriting, it was so good. I don't believe that it's not that America didn't like the way that Willie Nelson sang. I think it's that the people in Nashville marketing him weren't marketing him. You know what I mean? And yeah. so when when Dylan came through with all of his muscle and did things his way— That was a big deal, and that opened up a lot of doors for those guys to head in that new direction. And I mean, you know, Johnny Cash himself and Christofferson, all them guys, really gave Dylan a lot of that credit, you know? And it's like, where I'm at with this stuff, I got all these young kids listening to hip hop, telling me, man, I don't listen to country music, but I love what you're doing. That means a lot to me that they're saying that because I do feel like I'm bringing hip hop and blues and traditional country music with me in a way where the Grand Ole Opry respects what I'm doing, but also kids and urban culture respect what I'm doing, you know, and and, yeah. and there's and now that's tough to deal with radio and, like, you write about these country guys in Nashville, they're afraid to rock the boat, so to speak, but, like, they're playing Sam Hunt all over country radio, but, like, Lil Nas X couldn't get any spins, period. I really don't understand the difference there, you know? I, I actually, yeah. to be honest with you, I really like what he did and the way that that made young people look at country music you know, like outside of the country world. Yeah, I thought that was really cool because after that came out, every time somebody see me in a big city walking outside the tour bus, I would hear young people on the street singing, yelling Old Town Road to me, you know, just cause the way I'm dressed and stuff. And it's like, is something like that <laughs> gonna hurt me or is it gonna help my cause?
3: It's only gonna help. Bring more people to the table is, is only beneficial to everybody. That's what I'm saying. That's, and young- that's always, it's been like that with music all f- since the beginning of time.
2: This is the first time that I feel like young culture is looking back at, at country as a style as a cultural contribution without all of the stereotypes and yeah. the, the racial separation and all this stuff. Young people are looking at it like it's hip without all the baggage yeah. and that's that's a very cool thing, man. You know? That's a very cool thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that another thing is like you know you know Crowben who also from Texas. Oh yeah, I know him
2: cuz I know him through Leon, yeah. Yeah, so every time
3: I put that on, I just like if I'm at a party of anywhere, like there needs to be a mood to be made, I just put on Krongman. Mm-hmm. And that's just like and it leads into the the Leon Collabs and it's just that those records were, who are a perfect like Texas multiracial fusion, but it's like kind of got this country background or country. Yeah, it's you know. kind of
2: got that West Texas desert kind of openness. Yeah,
3: and that's something that every young person like they're always like, what is this? And then that 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 like spreads like wildfire. Everybody but loves just, it. Yeah, it's like it's something that just that if you give country, it's like in its basic pure form, as something sweet, something really Americana, something like Western and mysterious at the same time, something with great songwriting and simple, mm. anybody can gravitate to that. And you can—it's got this—the the, the greatest building blocks to create music is coming from like you know really really pure country music. And like I said, yeah, the stereotypes really ruined it. And maybe not because the artists, because all the artists I know. Are such awesome people. The old guys, the new guys—they've—they've been through a lot, you know, from Dolly and Willie to like the new guys, like you and Sturgill and Orville, who are doing new great things. You're never gonna find a country artist that hasn't have a great sense of unity and uh, you know ideas. But I think a lot of times the places where it gets played and and and, you know has people and audiences that do give it a bad rep. And um, yeah, I constantly feel like I'm fighting to to help break those stereotypes about country music, even in, in my little world like, that, I'm, that I'm bringing people to. But I think it's changing, you know, I'm just kind of pissed that Stagecoach was canceled because that was like the weirdest vibe I had last last time I had Lil Nas X and Billy Ray play with me. <laughs> and that's such a weird collab. Cause you know, Billy Ray, Ron Perry at Columbia put Billy Ray on that song because Billy Ray back in the, in the in the nineties also was like, kind of like clowned out of country a little bit. You know, he was like, but he was like not even really country, but he was. I mean, he brought people to country back in that sense. Like he was like, country could be awesome and rocking. You could dance to it and i think ron was like i'll put him on
2: man they did the same thing to shania twain yeah they tried to say shania twain wasn't country you listen back to her now man and that's like 100 top country. i mean just i think
3: even just like women in country in the front in oh, general man. like it's like the dark zone like with the way they're treated and like even like on radio and i think yes sir that's i don't want to get right into now. it too much but it's but it's been like that since i've seen it you know you have to have someone so powerful like dolly to really to take it out of country, you know, do something like nine to five yeah. and go, I'm gonna do pop music and, you know, Even Loretta cause that's why I can get respect through. as a woman. Yeah. yeah, like I can get respect as a woman that way. And um, I see a lot of artists nowadays, like trying to get a woman not feature on my record. Like there's no, there's no women around. It's like kind of crazy. Like they're just, there's, it's all such a male dominated audience, especially on the radio. And that's for another podcast, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I got. Um, that's real. I gotta roll out of here in a little bit, but I was gonna ask you, is are you really related to David Crockett? It's like one of the last questions I wanted to yeah, ask Yeah,
2: man. I'm a direct descendant through Elizabeth Patton. Elizabeth Patton Crockett, his wife they had all the kids with. Uh Yeah. Yeah, I'm a direct descendant out of they I got a lot of family out of Arkansas, and then uh Elizabeth is buried in Grandbury, Texas. And my grandfather was always real proud of that. And uh I almost, you know, you be doubting yourself because people clown on you so much and think all these tall tales and all this stuff, but uh I've got proof on Ancestry.com, baby. How about that? I love it. But uh, grew up with that, man. And and, and I've been running with that, you know, and he's an interesting character because there's the real Davy Crockett that nobody really knows anything about. And then there's the commercially viable Davy Crockett, which is the, I like to call the Disneyfication. The raccoon hat. Yeah. yeah, That's what brought him to the household, you know, and I've always felt like part of what I wanted to do was be like, uh, much like what we're talking about with country music is, I'd like to have an impact on, on how people maybe see him, not just as this Disney character, but more of a complex kind of unique American individual, you know, that represents Texas yeah.
3: And the frontier and just like, you know, American dreams and that kind of vibe. Charlie, thanks for making time for me. and. Uh, I appreciate what you're doing, I hope that we can link up soon. I know we're, we're trading some texts and emails. I hope we can get a record done. That'd be awesome for for my project. That'd
2: be hit, man. I think I think we keep talking about this thing. We might be able to do something cool.
3: Yeah, and also I think we need we can do a whole other podcast just talking about your your history because I love the New Orleans vibe. I remember going to so many parties there, and just a speakeasies still happening there. Oh, like man, and I remember falling asleep in the bonfire, with my shoes melting one night, and having somebody to pick me up, drag me out of the fire. And uh, it's a long it was a long night. But we could talk about New Orleans for hours, man, me and you, but let's get back together soon. Thanks for uh, taking time and I'll speak to you later. Oh no, man, pleasure belongs to me. Later. Bye.
0: Charlie Crockett, Diplo, thank you so much for joining us here on the Talk House podcast. We cannot wait to hear what you two get up to in the studio.
1: Coincidentally, the two guys name-dropped Wu-Tang Clan's RZA, and RZA actually appeared in conversation with Paul Banks a little while back. You can check it out in our archives.
0: And while you're there, make sure to subscribe to the show because we have some insane episodes coming up, including next week's Perfume Genius with Jeremy O. Harris, the playwright behind Slave Play, the aforementioned Paul Banks of Interpol and Muzz in conversation with Shepard Fairey, Deerhoof with Wadada Leo Smith, Bob Mould with Bully, and Mac DeMarco with Glow.
1: All amazing.
0: It's a wild couple months ahead.
1: Yeah, you better stay tuned. Make sure to follow us on all of our social media accounts. They're at TalkHouse. And also, the TalkHouse podcast Live on Insta series is continuing on September 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern with Anya Marina and Nikki Glaser.
0: Yep, Nikki Glaser has memorably been on the show before with the bachelorette Caitlin Bristow in one of our, I'm going to use an old-timey 50s word in honor of Charlie, a saucy episode, a blue episode. <laughs> <laughs> She's great.
1: That's wild.
0: That'll be a hell of a live. I'll be there. For today's show, Charlie was recorded by Gary Calhoun James at King Electric Recordings in Austin, and Diplo recorded himself at home in L.A. on that black mirror we all carry around in our pockets. Our producer extraordinaire is Mark Yoshizumi. The Talkhouse podcast theme was composed and performed by The Range. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn.
1: And I'm Sam Small.
0: Peace! Peace! And country <laughs> hip-hop.